following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. We are continuing in our series in the book of Nehemiah. So if you've got your Bible, you can open it up to Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'm going to read the entirety of Nehemiah chapter 8. So settle in and pay attention now to God's Word. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and of those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose, and beside him stood Matahiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilakiah, Masaiah on his right, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadadanad. Zechariah and Meshalum on his left hand. Whew. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Habadiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, or the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, And Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive and wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out, and they brought them, and they made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. From the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel had, to to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. 
And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Friends, this is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, it is with joy that we come before you today to hear your word, to be attentive to it. Lord, will you open our ears and open our eyes and soften our hearts that we might see and hear and know you today. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about the idea of revival, and we saw revival happening in Nehemiah, and we talked about revival being the ordinary works of the Spirit that produce through even ordinary means some very extraordinary things in God's people. Well, here's one of the things that we didn't talk about that really this portion of Nehemiah really hammers home to us, and it's that revival is always centered upon a deeper engagement in God's Word. Let me say that again. Revival is always centered upon a deeper engagement in God's Word. It's always present. Now, there may be other things that happen as well to bring about revival, but they are never exclusive from deeper engagement in the Word. For instance, if a lake freezes over somewhere, you could say, well, what caused the lake to freeze? It was maybe a cold front that came in. Or it's just January and you live in Minnesota, and so lakes freeze in January in Minnesota. And both of those things would be true. But the lake will never freeze without the temperature dropping below 32 degrees. That always has to happen. Whether, whichever way it comes, it's always a component centered on lake freezing, water freezing at any point. It has to be about the temperature dropping below 32 degrees. The same is true with the way that God works revival in our hearts and our churches and our communities in our world is that it's got to be centered upon God's Word. And we get a beautiful description of God's Word being read to His people and of amazing things happening here in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. I just want to talk about three of those things. What happens when we come into contact with God's Word, when our lives are actually centered around God's Word? And it's three of these things. It's our our ears actually get opened and they become attentive to God's Word and we pay attention. Secondly, our eyes see Jesus more clearly in His Word. And then thirdly, our hearts rejoice. We'll look at those three things today. Let's start with our ears our ears hear and they pay attention. You know, in order for us to actually hear and pay attention to things, you have to have two things happen, right? You have to have one who speaks and you have to have one who listens. That's kind of how communication works. And it's great in this passage in Ezra, I mean in Nehemiah 8, you hear both of those things. So let's start with those who are speaking because there's actually a lot of them. We hear first that Ezra, the priest or the scribe, he's given both titles. Ezra comes and he reads God's law before the people. These would have been on big scrolls written in Hebrew, and Ezra would have stood above. They built actually a platform, kind of a pulpit for him, so that he could read God's Word to the people. The priests were responsible for overseeing the temple, for offering sacrifices as a a mediator, a go-between between the people and the Lord. The priests also were in charge of the law and of even teaching God's people the law. 
Now, it's not a one-to-one comparison by any means, but just for our purposes, you can think of this as being the senior pastor of the church who gets up to read and to preach. But there's others involved as well, aren't there? There are these 13 guys with incredibly hard-to-pronounce names that are standing up there with Ezra. And we're not told that they're reading, but they seem to be participating in giving God's Word to God's people, almost like they're elders, the church elders there that are saying, we're going to feed God's people with God's Word and participate in that. And then you've got the Levites. Now, the Levites did a lot of different things in the Old Testament. They were the ones who were in charge of the temple and made sure everything worked. They were in some ways kind of this mix between pastors and church staff and church workers, and they did some teaching and they did some protecting, they did some worship leading, all of that together. And what they're doing here is so important. They're actually engaging people with God's Word in the way that they can understand it. We're told that they read the Word and they gave the sense so that the people could understand it. The idea actually is that Ezra is reading, and while he's reading, there are small groups of people led by these Levites who are actually gathering the people together and doing Bible study, and they're teaching them what's going on. First of all, they probably would have had to translate because the Word would have been read in Hebrew, the scrolls would have been written in Hebrew, but the regular language of the time was Aramaic. So the Levites are having to translate actually language to the people, but they're also doing interpretation. They're telling them what it means. They're helping the people understand God's Word. This idea of God's Word actually being meaningful for God's people in a very specific time and place in the way that they can understand it didn't start happening at the Reformation. We're finding it here in Nehemiah 8. And it continues to be something so important for God's people that we get to hear and understand God's Word and know what it means for us in our particular time and place, in our particular both physical, linguistic, and cultural languages. And then there's this other group of people who shows up the next day, and they're continuing to study, and they're kind of like maybe the small group leaders of the time or the really engaged parents. And they say, hey, listen, we've got together and we've been reading God's Word and we actually found some stuff in here that we're failing to do. So let's start doing that thing. Isn't that beautiful, though, that there are so many people involved in teaching God's Word to God's people? This, this couple of days here is, is like a, a sermon and a Bible study and a community group just kind of all rolled into one and it's all happening at one time. And it is beautiful to see here in Nehemiah 8 that it does really take a church to teach the church. We have specific jobs and specific roles in the church, but we all are called to gather around God's Word and to encourage one another and to lead one another in following the Lord in His Word. So it takes people who are engaged in speaking God's Word to one another. But of course, it also takes attentive ears, people who listen, doesn't it? Let me read to you again from verse 3. Listen to this. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I I don't want to be too on the nose here, but uh, let me just tell you what's going on. God's people are together. Ezra is preaching from early morning to midday 
about a three or four hour sermon, and everybody is gathered together with their kids, by the way, and they are standing and they are totally locked in and paying attention. Listen, if any of you people come and say, listen, pastor, that sermon was just a little bit long today, we're going directly to Nehemiah 8, okay? Four-hour sermon, and people are totally locked in. My friend, Pastor Jonathan, who many of you met from Uganda, who lived with Lauren Lambert for a couple of months, the first time that they were here at Hope, he took me aside afterwards and he said, Pastor, I really enjoyed your sermon, but it was really, really short. Because Ugandan pastors are much more Ezra than they are McCollum, okay? And maybe I need to hear something about that. Because I think generally speaking, we kind of come and we say, listen, we live in a time and a place where people just, our attention spans are just too short. I mean, who could pay attention to something for three hours? Who could go to an event for three hours and stand most of the time and be totally locked in. I don't know who could do that. Maybe 100,000 of the people who were in Austin yesterday who did that, or who were in College Station who did that, or who were in any other college town every other Saturday in the fall who get together and are totally locked in. Not that I didn't spend those three hours totally locked in on my couch watching the exact same game. Or maybe you like music. Have you ever been to a concert? Taylor Swift's tour, she's on tour right now. Taylor Swift's tour, her era's tour, 44 songs, 10 different acts, well over three hours long, and she's got 146 tour dates. 72,000 people on average go to those shows. That means 10.5 million people We'll spend more than three hours, many of them standing the whole time, totally locked in and engaged on Taylor Swift. Now, if you want, you could go to a Chiefs game, and you could knock both of these things out with one stone, right? And listen, I love football, and I like Taylor Swift, but it should tell someone like me who sat on a couch for three hours yesterday totally locked into a football game that there is maybe a way that I could spend my attention differently, that maybe it should challenge the way that I think about how attentive I am to God's Word. All right, let's move on from that. That's our ears, that God is calling us to open our ears to His Word. Secondly, our eyes. What happens when we come in contact with God's Word is that our eyes actually see Jesus more clearly. Friends, this is supposed to happen every time you open God's Word. The Bible is a story with a central figure, and that central figure is Jesus Christ. Jesus actually says this himself on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Luke tells us that as he's walking with these men, he finally opens their eyes, and he opens their eyes to the fact that the Bible is really about him. If you've got kids, I would highly recommend this children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I love it because it locks into that concept that Jesus is the central figure of the Bible. In fact, the subtitle for this Bible, this children's Bible, is Every Story Whispers His Name. So how does Nehemiah 8 whisper Jesus' name? Well, a few ways. The first way is that it actually doesn't whisper it, it just says it right out. 
Maybe you heard me say that they celebrated the Feast of Booths uh, in a way that hadn't happened since Yeshua, the son of Nun. That's what we would normally think of as Joshua, the son of Nun, the successor to Moses. And Yeshua is a shortened form of Yehoshua, a Hebrew name that we normally call Joshua. So by this time in Israel's history, that word Yehoshua would have been shortened probably to Yeshua, and that's the guy's name. But listen how cool this is, is that when the angel appears to Mary and says, Mary, you are going to give birth to the Messiah, what does he tell her to name him? Yeshua. It's a word that means God saves. And the angel says that specifically to Mary. He says, I want you to call him Yeshua because he is going to save his people from their sins. Yeshua, translated into Latin, is Iesus, which is where we get the English Jesus. So Jesus' name is right here in Nehemiah chapter 8. But Jesus actually shows up in a much more subtle way here too, and it's really cool. So think about this. They are celebrating the Feast of Booths. It's a hard word to say, booths, right? But the Feast of Booths is actually something that was supposed to point them back to the Exodus. God rescued His people out of slavery in Egypt, and then along the way, as they were traveling through the wilderness, He provided for them until He gave them a new place, a permanent home in Canaan. And they lived during that time in temporary housing. They lived in kind of structures that you could put up in a day and take down in a day. In fact, their church building was a temporary building. They had to set up and take down every week. Isn't that great? And those booths that they lived in, as they celebrate the Feast of Booths, they're supposed to remember back to that time in the wilderness where God rescued and provided for them, where God told them not only to dwell in these temporary places, but that He was going to dwell with them and that they were going to be, that He was actually going to be their dwelling place. Right? So as they erected these temporary booths, they were to remember that God provided and rescued them. Now, hang on, because we're just going to get in the weeds here just a second. So just lock in with me for a sec. So around the time after this, time of Nehemiah, is if you know your history, in the 4th century B.C. is when Alexander the Great came and conquered really most of the known Western world. And in that conquering, he spread the Greek language all over. And so, most of these people in this region, just a couple of hundred years later, would have all been speaking Greek. And so, what the Jews did is they developed a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Bible. We call that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if you look through the Septuagint and you looked up Nehemiah 8, what you would find is that the Greek word that is there translated for that Hebrew word that we say booths is a Greek word called skene. Stay with me here. Skene. Skene is a word that we often translate in English as tabernacle, which is why oftentimes you may have heard of this as the Feast of Tabernacles or that temporary building for worship that God's people carried with them through the wilderness was called the tabernacle. That's where we get it. But this is where it gets cool. If you were a Jew then living in the first century and you were a Greek-speaking Jew living in the first century, and this man Jesus had showed up on the scene, 
and you were wondering, who in the world is this and what do I need to know about him? And you somehow got a hold of John's gospel. You would open it up and you would read in Greek John's gospel in chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the Word is Jesus, and that word dwelt, guess what word it is? Skene, tabernacled. Jesus, the everlasting eternal Word, took on flesh and tabernacled with His people, put on their temporary clothing, and became one of them, dwelt with them. Pretty cool, right? It gets cooler. If you fast forward to the book of Revelation, a vision that God gives the apostle John about what the future even is going to look like when Jesus returns, we read something so wonderful in Revelation chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, you can flip it over, Revelation 7, 13 through 17, or it's on the screen, I believe, as well. Listen to this. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall no longer hunger anymore, neither shall they thirst. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's go back to 15. Look at this. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Anybody want to guess what word that shelter is? It's skene, tabernacle. He will actually provide a dwelling place for them. The Lord Jesus, the Lamb who sits on the throne, will be the tabernacle for His people. So think about how beautiful and rich and full this is then to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, to look backward and say, the Lord has rescued us out of slavery and He has provided for us. He has been our dwelling place all of these years, the Bible says. And then to look forward and to see that the Lord will one day actually come and He will take on our flesh to tabernacle with us, to dwell with us to actually fix the bigger problem of rescuing us, not just from slavery in Egypt, from slavery to ourselves, our sin, slavery to death itself. And not only that, but we look forward to a time where that Son of God will sit on His throne and become the dwelling place for His people, the tabernacle that we will find ourselves in. How incredible is that? Amen, indeed. Jesus is right here in Nehemiah 8, and He's calling us to see Him. All right, how about the third thing? Not only opens our ears to be attentive to God's Word and our eyes to see Jesus, but this last thing is that our hearts rejoice. Our hearts rejoice when we come to God's Word. Maybe it was surprising to you to listen to those words of Nehemiah 8 and hear what happened, right? Ezra gets up and he reads the law. The Levites all gather together in small groups and they explain the law. And in the middle of this Bible study, what does everybody do? They start crying. Why are they weeping? Well, I think the reason they're weeping is actually something that's very natural that's built into the human soul, is that God's Word is meant to be a mirror for us so that when we look at it, we actually see who we are more clearly. And these people are actually responding in the way that we are called to respond 
which is when we see that mirror and we see ourselves and it is much uglier than we want it to be, we actually begin to weep over our sin. Friends, that is an appropriate thing to do. And Mike is going to talk to us next week about confession. We're going to dig into that. It is good and right for us to look at God's Word and to see our own hearts and begin to weep over them. But that is not where we are called to stay. And this is the beautiful, beautiful proclamation we get from Nehemiah 8, is though it is good and right for us to look at our hearts and to be saddened by it, we cannot stay there. See, there, there really are four options for us when we come to God's Word. The first is that we can come and we can just not pay attention at all. I explained to a friend the other day that my financial situation right now feels kind of like walking with my eyes closed into traffic, right? And maybe some of you feel that way as well. If you've got kids in college, that's just kind of the general feeling. But listen, some people actually deal with their spiritual lives that way right, is that the way that I'm going to kind of deal with this is I'm just not going to pay attention. I'll close my eyes, I'll walk forward, and you know, maybe it'll be fine. That's not a very helpful way to deal with things. The second way we can deal with it is actually more honest and just as discouraging, is that we see our sin and we stay there, and we wallow in our guilt and our shame, and we weep and we cry and we mourn, but we can't get out of it, and we simply stay in hopelessness. Third, we could actually be true and real and and honest about our sin and actually even know that we need to turn to some sort of Savior, but we could turn to the wrong thing, right? We could go and seek shelter in something else that's going to make us feel good. Money, power, relationships, control, so many different things that are idols that our hearts turn to that make us feel like it's going to solve that big problem in our lives, which of course it only exacerbates. Which leads us to the fourth and final and only true response. And it's the one that Ezra and Nehemiah call God's people to in Nehemiah 8. Is they say, listen, you've come to God's Word. You've seen who you are. You've, you've been exposed as a fraud. Now here's who to turn to. There is a Lord who is a place that you can go to. There is a place you can go to find shelter, to find protection. In fact, look at verse 10 again. This is so beautiful. Verse 10, Nehemiah says this to the people. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That word strength in Hebrew is all throughout the Old Testament and it's beautiful. It's oftentimes translated as stronghold or like castle, hiding place, refuge. It is the place to go. The Psalms are full of this word saying that the Lord is my refuge. He is my strong tower. He is the place that I can go when I am weary. And so what the Bible actually tells us is that we are meant to come and see who we are before God. And then in our sorrow, we have a place to go. We can turn to the Lord who is our refuge, who is our strength, who is our stronghold. There's a place for us. And what does Nehemiah say that's supposed to produce in us? Joy. Joy. Nehemiah says, listen, when you get to that place, here's what I want you to do. Throw a party. Celebrate. Eat the fat of the meat and drink the sweet wine. 
If I go to a barbecue place and I order brisket and they ask me this question, do you want lean or fatty brisket? I, I feel offended. What is lean brisket? Of course I want fatty brisket. That's where the flavor is. And that's what Nehemiah is saying here. Dig in, celebrate, eat the flavorful stuff, feast. I'm going to close with this because there's something really beautiful going on in this passage, I think, is that there is actually a theological circle happening in this passage. This is actually the way that it's supposed to work, and we'll put this diagram up here that I think may be helpful in thinking through this. What's supposed to happen is that we're supposed to open up God's Word, and that mirror pops up, right? That truth-telling mirror pops up, and we see who we are before the Lord, and we then cry out to Him, and we are sent then to the cross. And we are sent then to the cross to receive the beautiful forgiveness, to celebrate God's grace, to know and hear Him say, you're forgiven. You are wiped clean. You are made righteous before me. You are my child. I am taking you to myself. But what happens then is that those who have been forgiven are stimulated by that grace, respond to that grace by going where? Nowhere? No, we go right back actually to the place that we started. We go right back to God's Word, and we want to pay attention even more. And then, of course, the whole cycle starts over. We're driven back to the cross. We're driven back to the Word so that we might wallow in His grace and be attentive to His Word all together at the same time. And friends, what that does, it produces joy. That is actually an equation for joy in your life. If you are wondering, how do I increase my joy? Well, here's one way. Start to work that equation in your heart. Be attentive to God's Word. Come and find yourself before the cross and feel and know His loving embrace, and then run back to His Word that you might be formed by it and shaped by it. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate and feast together at this table. And then after church, we're going to celebrate and feast together on chili and pie. And it's going to be fantastic. But there is a feast waiting for us that is so much better than any of this. The one that our Lord Jesus is preparing for us. And friends, until we reach that joyful feast, let us be joyful of heart today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have given us your word today. Again, we pray, open our ears, work it into our hearts, open our eyes and let us see more clearly so that we might um, neither wallow in our shame nor turn to other saviors, but might rejoice in the salvation we have in Christ. We pray in his name only, amen.